I'm Dr. Regina Kep. I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist, and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the Psychology of Aging podcast to dispel myths about aging, destigmatize mental health for older adults, and improve access to mental health care. Whether you're an older adult, a family member caring for an older adult, or a professional working with older adults, you're in the right place. And one more thing. If you're a licensed mental health provider like a social worker, psychologist, counselor, therapist, or an aging life care expert or certified care manager looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. All right, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to the Psychology of Aging podcast. So this is season two, and I wanted to launch season two at the beginning of May. So as I record this, it's May 3rd, 2022, because May is Mental Health Awareness Month and May is also Older Americans Month. And I couldn't think of a better time to launch this continuing education podcast than May 2022. So welcome. Let me tell you how this season is different. This season, we are offering continuing education for psychologists, social workers, therapists, aging life care experts, or certified care managers for listening to the podcast. How it works is you listen to the full episode, then you complete a post-test and program evaluation, and presto, you get your certificate. To learn more about the continuing education program, go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com. You'll learn more there. My goal with this podcast is to democratize education related to mental health and aging. So what does that mean? We are making this program available to anybody who needs this information, regardless of their ability to pay. So anybody can listen, you, your family, older adults, caregivers, professionals, anyone. Uh, We only ask for payment if you are looking for continuing education. And actually the continuing education program allows us to put on this program for free for other folks who might need the information, but might not be able to pay for this information. So thank you for being here and doing your part. All right. Now, I cannot wait to tell you about today's guest. It's really a dream come true. I am the president of her fan club. That's a it's a metaphor. I'm not really a president of her fan club, but I would be if she had one. Maybe I'll, Maybe you and I could start one. So let me introduce you to today's esteemed guest. Dr. Becca Levy is the leading authority on how beliefs about aging influence aging health. She is a professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health and professor of psychology at Yale University. Her pathfinding studies have changed the way we think about aging and have received awards from the American Psychological Association, the Gerontological Society of America, and the International Association of Gerontology and Geriatrics. Dr. Levy has given invited testimony before the U.S. Senate on the adverse effects of ageism, and she has contributed to U.S. Supreme Court briefs to fight age discrimination. She serves as a scientific advisor to the World Health Organization's campaign to combat ageism. Dr. Levy received her Ph.D. in psychology from Harvard University and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the Division of Aging and the Department of Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Her expertise on aging is frequently sought out by outlets such as the New York Times, NPR, and BBC. Dr. Levy is also author of an incredible new book, hot off the press, called Breaking the Age Code, How Your Beliefs About Aging Determine How Long and Well You Live. I invite you to check out Dr. Levy's bio and more about her in the show notes. All right, let's jump into this interview with Dr. Levy. Dr. Becca Levy, thank you so much for joining us today on the Psychology of Aging podcast. I'm delighted that you're here. Thank you. It's great to join you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. How did you get interested? You're such a prolific researcher. You've done so much work in this space. How did you get interested in aging and ageism? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I actually first became really interested in the topic of ageism when I was in graduate school and I had the opportunity to go to Japan 
And I went with the goal of trying to understand why it is that Japan has the longest lifespan in the world. And what I immediately noticed when I arrived there is how differently the older people were treated from what I was used to seeing. So I lived in Boston at the time, and I was used to seeing a lot of examples of, of ageism in everyday life. And, um, and so what I immediately noticed in Japan when I arrived was that the older people were treated with a lot more respect. Then there was sort of the celebration of aging. So for example, they have a national holiday that celebrates older people, and they have uh, if when I turned on the television, there were these centenarians and super centenarians, people who are 110 and older, who were celebrated on, on television as these rock stars or celebrities. And so I became really interested in the idea of, is it possible that these age beliefs that exist in a culture could have an impact on older individuals' health and survival or, or lifespan? And what I've found following that experience is through, through my research um, many pieces of evidence that show that that is the case. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today is, is sort of how our beliefs about aging influence our older adulthood and our, and our overall quality of life and wellness. Exactly. Yes. You often talk about the stereotype embodiment theory to help us understand ageism, you know, there's structural ageism and then there's internalized ageism and then, and then othering. Can you talk a bit about the stereotype embodiment theory? What is that? And how, how does that help us understand ageism? Sure. Yes. Thank you for asking about that. So I developed the stereotype embodiment theory as a framework to try to understand just the process that we were just talking about of how it's possible that these age beliefs that exist in a culture can actually get under our skin and have a direct impact on aging health. And so the framework is both a way to make sense of our growing number of results that have come out of, out of my, my laboratory, but also make predictions about things that we can explore and examine in the future. And what the theory actually includes four components, and they all get at this idea that the stereotypes that exist in a culture can impact health as they become self-relevant. Um, and so the, I'll, I'll just could go through the four areas. So, so the first is that they become stereotypes become internalized across the lifespan. And so we know that children as young as age three have already taken in the age beliefs of their culture, and then they're reinforced over time. And there's a lot of ways that these stereotypes can be taken in, you know, starting at a young age. And so, for example, um, one of the images that I think of that I was exposed to as, as a child was the Hansel and Gretel story. And so, um, as you're probably familiar, it's actually presents this older woman who fattens up the children so that she can eat them. You know, so it's this terrible image of, of an older woman that, um, and I remember hearing that story, you know, being quite scared at a young age. So there are these, all these ways that we can communicate messages to children. Um, and then those are reinforced over time across the lifespan. The second component of the stereotype embodiment theory is that they can operate unconsciously or without our awareness. And the reason that that's important is if we don't actually know that the age beliefs are impacting us, it's hard to fight them off if they're negative. So, um, and, you know, in, in my research, I've been able to design studies in which we implicitly present the age stereotypes and we can find even without awareness when we present the age stereotypes that they can have these dramatic impacts on people's you know, health, older people's health and functioning. Uh, the third way that the theory operates is that they gain salience from self-relevance. So yes, yeah, so that's the third component of, of the theory. And this is the idea that the age beliefs, as we said, we take them in at a young age, but it's not until they become self-relevant or they're part of our own way that we think about ourselves as, a, as an older person, that they actually become impactful on health and functioning. And so in my research, I found that it, we actually don't see the results of these age beliefs impacting health and functioning on younger adults because they're not yet self-relevant. But when people start to identify as being older, that's when we see the impact. And it can happen both directions. It can happen with both positive age beliefs having you know, a beneficial impact and then the negative ones having, having a, a detrimental impact. 
Um, and then the last, the fourth component of the stereotype embodiment theory is that the way that these stereotypes get under our skin or actually impact our health and functioning is um, through multiple pathways. And um, so that's actually the part of the theory that gets at the mechanism. And we have found in the research that there are three mechanisms that seem to be really important that operate. So one is on the behavioral level. So I found that when people take in more positive age beliefs, they have better health behaviors, they're more likely to take prescribed medications, they're more likely to exercise. On the psychological level, um, we found that people who take in more positive age beliefs are more likely to have sense of mastery and self-efficacy and better well-being. Um, and then on the physiological level, I have found that those who take in more positive age beliefs have better physiological markers. So for example, those who've taken in more positive age beliefs tend to have lower cortisol levels. And we know from a lot of research, as you know, that these kind of stress biomarkers over time can have a, um, an impact on our health. So yeah, so those are the, the four components. And what inspired you to create this model? I know you do a ton of research. Is it, was this a way to help people begin to operationalize what ageism, how it takes form, what the, the outcomes are when we have positive or negative beliefs? And I guess my question more specifically is what are you hoping us to learn, get from using this model or using this model as a conceptualization tool? Yes. Yeah, so thanks for asking that. So I developed the model in part because when I started this research, almost all the research was being done on younger and adults. So how younger people think about older people, how younger people's behaviors is, are impacted by their, their, their thoughts about older people. So I was really interested in giving a voice to the older people themselves and really think about how it can impact older people. And after I went to Japan and I observed this cultural association that I thought might be operating, I wasn't really sure how to go forward. So I thought, okay, well, it seems like there's some relationship between these cultural beliefs that I'm observing and something and their lifespan, but how do I actually connect them? And so I thought a lot about what are the components or how can we actually identify those age beliefs? What's the best way to get at that? And what's the best way to connect that to, to health outcomes? And the framework was a an attempt to try to bring together those pieces and really think how can how can it be that these cultural beliefs have an impact on health calling all mental health providers have you been feeling ineffective stuck or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss well it's not your fault most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy. But I got something for you. In my free 10-minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss, you'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y. I know today we're going to talk about some of that research um, because you're um, pointing to cultural differences. You've also done some research on in, um, cross-cultural or um, cultural differences as it relates to beliefs about aging. I'm thinking about a study you did some time ago, looking at deaf Americans, is it white Americans and then mainland Chinese? It was, um, so it was, yeah, mainland Chinese and deaf Americans and then hearing Americans. Um, so those were, yeah, those were the three groups. And right, so that was um, 
an attempt, as we talked about, to try to pull apart how is is it how can we actually observe that there is an association between these age beliefs and health? And that was um, in that study, I did a lot of investigation to try to identify cultures that might have more positive age beliefs. And after going through a lot of anthropological texts, the cultures that identified for that study were, were um, mainland Chinese culture, which has all these you know, Confucian ideas of, of respect and a lot of intergenerational contact between um, different generations. And then the deaf culture was one that I hadn't didn't know about before, but there was this wonderful text by Gaylene Becker on deaf older people. And she described the culture and she actually focused on San Francisco deaf clubs. And she wrote about these, this wonderful intergenerational culture within that community. And and actually, I I know that you have, I I heard one of your podcasts talking about deaf as being an important um, component of thinking about aging in a really important population. And so I, I loved that text and I love those sort of anthropological findings. So in that study, what we did is um, I interviewed people, older people and younger people in mainland China, then in the United States within the deaf culture, older and younger um, deaf culture members, and then the, a mainland, uh, and then a hearing American comparison group. And what we found was that the most positive age beliefs were expressed in mainland China, followed by the deaf um, community, and then followed by the hearing Americans. And then what we found was among the older groups in those three communities, those who had more positive age beliefs also had better memory performance. There was a significant association between more positive age beliefs of the culture and actually how they performed on memory tasks. What Am I remembering this right in that study? Um, did you also, in, in summarizing or in thinking or discussing that study, did you also talk about the influence of American media on how a person thinks about aging? Am I remembering that right? Yes. So um, you're right. So the media and social media definitely um, has is a big source of some of those messages of age beliefs. And um, so in one study, actually, after my daughters pointed out to me some of the negative messaging on social media that they were observing related to aging, I did a study and tried to look at all publicly accessible sites that had a focus on older people. And we did a content analysis of it. And what I found was, unfortunately, that most of the sites had negative stereotypes about older people. And 37% of them actually advocated banning older people from different public activities like swimming and going to shopping malls. So it was this really terrible presentation of older people. And these are publicly accessible. So anybody could you know, get onto the group and look for it. Um, and I, at the time, I actually, I reported some of the most offensive groups to Facebook. They have a community standards board. And unfortunately, you know, many months later, they were, they were all still up. So, you know, that, yeah, that's a one source of which could, I mean, I think social media could be a great place to really bring generations together, but there are these signs, unfortunately, that it can also be a place to spread ageism. Yeah. And, and we know it doesn't only exist in social media research also often excludes older adults you know, I often see we're recruiting um, people for our study 18 to 64. Exactly. Yeah. So you're right. So there are, that is a, a big problem with a lot of clinical trials that they tend to have a upper age limit and exclude older people from, from trials. And actually some of the trials are looking at trying to improve um, health outcomes that are particularly common in older people. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it, you're right. That's another way that older people are excluded from a really important area of, of our society. Do you find, you know, there are so many stereotypes and myths about aging and older adults. What are some of the most common stereotypes that we have? Yeah, so that's a good question. So in in the book Breaking the Age Code, I present about I think it's 14 common negative stereotypes about aging and then present the what I call ammunition to fight those negative stereotypes because they're all have 
uh, counter evidence, or we can find the science that goes against some of those common stereotypes. And a lot of them actually, some of the evidence shows that there's in fact strengths in those areas. So for example, perhaps the most common negative stereotype about aging is that all cognition declines for all older people. And the science shows that that's just not the case. There's just many different types of memory. So there's some that stay pretty stable, such as procedural memory or the ability to like remember to ride a bike, for example. Uh, there are other types of cognition and memory that actually improve in later life. So exam for example, the ability to learn uh, new vocabulary, also uh, life review seems to improve in later life, and also um, ability to solve conflicts seems to improve in later life. So these, these great qualities that actually improve. And then we also know that there are examples of older people who take on these memory tasks and accomplish fantastic things. So one of the things I really enjoyed in uh, writing the book was I got to interview different people. And uh, for example, um, there was one man who sh showed to me how these age beliefs can operate with memory. Um, so he, this was uh, an 84 year old man named John who took on the task of trying to memorize a 60,000 word poem. And he did this um, over, over time and he, and then he actually performed it and did this great job of, of performing this, this poem. And one of the things that he told me, which I thought was really interesting is that when he was taking on this memory task, he had his own positive age belief that he drew on, which in his case was this cellist that he thought of who performed this beautiful music um, on his cello in his eighties and nineties. So he had this positive image of somebody who was performing that both inspired him and motivated him and allowed him to accomplish this, this wonderful memory task. So, so that's, yeah. So, and then also in my research, I've also found that these positive age beliefs can have a real impact on memory performance in later life. So there's lots of pieces of evidence that, that that stereotype in particular has a lot of counter information that shows that it's just not, not accurate. Yeah. And I think Trinity College in London in the last couple of years published something about that too, around um, older, the older participants had better problem solving skills, had more flexible, cognitive flexibility and could self-regulate their emotions better than the, the younger participants. Right. Right. That's an important area too. You're right about the emotion regulation. So exactly. So there's just a lot of these skills that we don't always recognize, but if we find out about the science and try to bring in the, those ideas into everyday life, I think we can really help maybe reverse some of that negative messaging. Yeah. you know, I'm thinking about myself and my own, this, my, the own, my own stereotypes that I held about older adults um, before I started working with older adults. So I did not grow up with grandparents or have many older people in my life. And um and I started every place I would go, I would gravitate to older people. And, um, because I, I needed that, I think. And, um, when I started working in, as a psychologist, I, I think I had the belief, well, old dogs can't learn new tricks. Like older adults are rigid and can't change is, is therapy really going to be effective for them? You know, are these um, ways of living and belief systems so entrenched that they can't be changed? I, I think I held that until I got to learn the truth about older adults. Can you speak a little bit to that? I know that's a really common myth that a lot of mental health and well-meaning helpers have. It, what's the, what's the ammunition exactly. to fight that belief? Yeah. So that's a really common uh, negative belief. You're right. And actually in the chap in the, in the book, I have a chapter on mental health and growth. And um, in part, because that stereotype that later life, that people don't benefit from therapy, that depression and anxiety are very common and there's nothing that can be, be done about it. Are those beliefs are really entrenched and unfortunately not just in the general culture, but also, you know, in some healthcare providers, I think, um, unfortunately there's not enough training for me mental health, um, it, it, around the topic of mental health and aging. So I think some of those negative stereotypes are allowed to continue even after people have gone through their, their training. Um, and so, um, yes, but I, I, I also went into, 
the field of psychology with those same kinds of stereotypes. So actually my first job after college was working in a um, mental health hospital and a psychiatric hospital. And the only position that was open at the time was on a geriatric unit. And I remember at the time I thought, I don't think I want this position. This is going to be so depressing working with people who aren't going to be able to get better. And it's, um, but then since it was the only position open, I thought, well, maybe I'll give it a try for a few weeks, you know, worse, worse comes to worse. I'll move on if, if it's really as bad as I think it is. And what I found working there was the complete opposite. So I observed all these um, cases of older people really benefiting from therapy. And I got to observe these really dedicated mental health professionals who thought about their issues from a very complex way and thought about different ways to really help, help the patients. And I saw them, you know, um, get, most of them got better and were able to go back into the community. And that was so inspiring to me to see how in actuality, there's just all these ways that older people can improve their mental health and grow in later life. Yeah. And that, and to your point, that is exactly why I started the center for mental health and aging is to help shift some of the education to be more inclusive of, of mental health for older adults. And, you know, studies show older adults benefit from therapy, especially for depression and anxiety at the same rates as younger adults and in substance use treatment programs, actually, um, some studies show even better outcomes. There's, um, better matriculation and, um, adherence to some of the treatment recommendations and then overall better outcomes, even a year later. Yeah. So it's great that you, you set up your center because it's so important and, I, and you're right. I mean, the science just really supports the benefits of mental health interventions in later life. Let's back up for a minute. Tell us about your lab because you were saying at my lab, we do this research. Tell us, fill us in on your lab a little bit, and then let's dive into some research around, um, you know, physical health or how our, our beliefs influence our physical health. And you do so much good work there and our mental health too. So tell us about your lab and then we can dive into some of that other research. Sure. Yes. So one of the things I, I love about conducting this research is that there are you know, multiple methods that we can take um, to really understand the process of how these psychosocial factors, how age beliefs can impact aging health. And so in my research group, uh, we actually take on three different type, types of methodologies. So one is experimental. So that's the most controlled kinds of studies where we bring people into a laboratory or we actually go out to their homes often and we randomly assign people to different conditions. And that allows us to look at the impact of age beliefs above and beyond other factors. So that's kind of the gold standard of clinical trials, which we're um, because of methods that I've developed to look at these age beliefs, we're able to do it in, in that same kind of way. Um, but in addition, we do cross-cultural work. So that to me is really important because as we talked about, there are these really dramatic differences in how cultures think about aging and the meaning they give to aging. And one of the ways that is really effective to understand that is to actually study these different cultures. Um, and then the third way is that we look at people over time in longitudinal studies. So, um, so I, I started off as an experimental psychologist and over time, I've also added in what's called psychosocial epidemiology methods, which allows us to look at people over a much longer time span. Um, and so those are often studies that I've been able to do with these wonderful longitudinal data sets that are out there that have asked people about their age beliefs early on in the study and then have followed them over decades. And we can track how their initial age beliefs can impact different kinds of health outcomes in a, with um, and taking advantage of one of the ideas we talked about earlier with stereotype embodiment theory that these age beliefs offer often operate over our lifespan. So there's, it's really interesting to be able to understand some of those processes over decades with people as well. I'm thinking about some of that long um, research and I don't know what, which the studies I'm thinking about, I don't know if they're, if they're cross-sectional or longitudinal, or you can tell me, but I'm thinking about the studies around how our um, beliefs about aging influence cardiovascular events, how our beliefs about aging influence Alzheimer's disease can you fill us in on some of that research? 
Sure. Yes. So um, you're right. So those are findings that we have in different studies. And the cardiovascular study is interesting because um, in our study that looked, so in one study, we looked at whether age beliefs influence cardiovascular outcomes over time. And in that study, we were able to include, that was done with the Baltimore longitudinal study of aging. And they actually measured people's age beliefs as young as uh, 18. And then they followed them over decades. And so what I was able to do with, with our team was to look at whether these initial age beliefs expressed in young adulthood impacted their cardiovascular events after they turned 60. And what we found was indeed those who had taken in more negative age beliefs at a young age were twice as likely to have a cardiovascular event when they turned 60. And what's important about that finding is it shows that these early age beliefs can be really important into in future aging health. So it really, I think, points the way to the importance of prevention or intervention starting, starting at a, a young age. Yeah, that's so powerful. Did it measure, do you know what sorts of age beliefs the people held? Yes. Yeah, so in that, so in different studies, we have different measures of age beliefs and we get it it's in different ways. But in that particular study, they did have a survey that they filled out at the beginning and it asked people, um, when you think of an older person, you know, how much do these adjectives describe the older person that you have in mind? And it would be you know, some of the more positive words would be something like capable and some more negative would be something like senility. So, um, so in that study, it was actually matching keywords to their imagery. Well, similar to um, the Harvard Implicit Associations test, I'm thinking that you associate the word and the image that you see quickly. And then what about with Alzheimer's disease? So I'm, I'm thinking, I think you have at least two studies I'm thinking of. One is around the progression of illness and um, and I know these are very specific, so I, I might be throwing you off, but, um, and then one's around people with genetic risk factors, like with the APOE4 gene. Yeah. yeah, yeah t- tell us about that. I'm impressed oh, that you know these findings. So oh great. my gosh. Well, I have to tell you, I'm, I think I'm, I'm the president of your fan club. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Yes. I'm very flattered that you, that you know, these results. So yes. So in the dementia research, um, we have found that I found that those who have more uh, negative age beliefs are significantly more likely to develop dementia over time, or conversely, those who've taken more positive age beliefs are protected from um, developing dementia. So that's a trend that we see in, in general. And then in another study, as you said, I was really interested in trying to understand the interaction of the genes that we're born with and then these cultural age beliefs. So I'm really interested in the field of epigenetics or trying to understand how cultural beliefs or psychosocial factors can impact the likelihood that different kinds of genes are going to be expressed. Um, And so in, in that study, I identified people who had this risky gene for developing dementia and looked to see whether in that group who've been born with this risky gene, how likely are they to develop dementia? And is there some advantage to acquiring these positive age beliefs? And what we found was that in this risky group, the the ones who who were born with this risky gene, if they develop more positive age beliefs, they were 40% less likely to develop dementia. And in fact, their risk of developing dementia was as low as people who are not born with the the risky gene. So that was a really kind of exciting study to find the way that these positive age beliefs can have an impact even in this high risk group. That's such powerful research. Now, why do you suppose it is that the way we think about things directly impacts our health? Yeah, so that's a good question. So we do know, um, as, as, yeah, as, as we talked about with stereotype embodiment theory, that there are these different levels. And in, in my research, I have focused on the different levels in different studies. And so it's probably the case that all of these levels are operating together. Uh, so far in my research, I've tried to really isolate each mechanism. And so uh, what I've looked at in the different studies are the different levels on which they operate. So 
we, um, I know that the age beliefs are uh, very present in society. And then one of the ways that they, that we sort of take them in is without awareness. So because they can operate implicitly, we don't necessarily, and often it starts at a very young age when the age beliefs are just not relevant to us. So if somebody tells a child a story, there's no reason for them to question it. And um, so we get a lot of messages that either we take in implicitly or they're, they're taken at a younger age before before we have the skills to, to question them. And then when people... Um, become older, those beliefs are somewhere in our in our mind, and we know that they can um, be be activated and start to act as a lens in how we take in information around aging and you know our own our own aging process. And then, um, as we talked about, there is evidence that they can operate on these three levels. So people who've taken in you know more positive age beliefs from their culture are more likely to have better health behaviors. Um, they're more likely to exercise, to eat healthy food, to take prescribed med- medications. On a, a psychological level, they're more likely to have a higher will to live. They're more likely to feel efficacious about taking on different kinds of behaviors. Um, and then on a physiological level as well, uh, and as we talked about with dementia, for example, I have a study that found that those who've taken in more negative age beliefs are actually more likely to develop the plaques and tangles in their brain that are one of the key biomarkers of dementia. So it really seems like that they can operate on, on um, in these different levels and really have an impact on health. And have an impact on longevity. So one of, I think you've also identified in your work that people with a positive system or positive belief system around aging live seven and a half years longer. Is that right? Yes. Right. Yes. So, um, so after I got back from Japan and I was really interested in this idea that age beliefs might impact longevity or lifespan, I searched for a way to actually to study that some more. And um, it took me a little while, but then I found this great study in Ohio that had been started by the sociologist, Robert Ashley. And what he did in, um, in the ni- 1975, I think is, is when he started the study was um, the, his team interviewed everybody in the town of Oxford, Ohio, who uh, was 50 or older at the time. And, um, and one of the questions they asked them is they asked them about their age beliefs. Uh, And so when I heard about this study, I was really excited because it was asked, you know, so many, so many decades earlier that I thought if only I could match those people to some lifespan information, maybe we could actually connect those early expressed age beliefs And so after searching around, I discovered that there actually is a way to do that, that there's this something called the National Death Index, which you can apply to use. And so I worked with a sociologist, uh, Suzanne Kunkel, and we matched these early age beliefs to longevity information. And as you said, what we found was that those who had expressed more positive age beliefs or taken in more positive age beliefs at the start of the study actually had a median survival advantage of seven and a half years beyond those who had taken in more negative age beliefs. Do you have any sense of their quality of life? Uh, We did in that study also look at um, different kinds of other kinds of health outcomes. And I mean, it seems like, I think in part because these age beliefs operate as a lens that can impact a number of different outcomes. We also found that they did have other positive health outcomes, um, including better functional health. So, uh, so yeah, so it seems like it's, it's not just lifespan, but it extends to other aspects of health. And can you define for us what functional health is just for people who are a little less familiar with that term? Yes. So functional health would be the ability to, you know, physically navigate in our space. So there are different measures to get at that, which would include balance and walking speed. Uh, in, in one of the most popular measures, it involves um, also timing of how, how fast somebody can get uh, sit and stand. And so it could be, so there's a number of different skills that allow us to um, you know, take walks, go up and down stairs. So those are the kinds of things which are measured with functional health. Yeah. And help with 
maintaining independence or necessary for independence. Exactly. Yes. That's an important piece of it. You're right. So, okay. So do you think we've sufficiently covered physical health? Are there other important physical health studies? So, right. So I think, yes, we talked about cardiovascular health and, um, that we have different studies on walking speed and physical health, um, functional health, and we have studies on biomarkers. So, um, that's another outcome that we found with, with outcomes such as cortisol. Um, there's also, uh, we have a study with inflammation as an outcome. So yes. So there are these different outcomes that are, um, there's sort of a synergy of findings. So we're finding similar patterns with different kinds of outcomes and different methodologies, but they all support this idea that these age beliefs can be, you know, important to aging health. That is so cool. Because you know what that, that says to me that um, we have a lot of influence as individuals in our own aging and our own health. And that's really cool. I feel very inspired and empowered about my own health and, and people I love and and people I, you know, serve clinically. Oh, good. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, I think I'm really inspired by the finding that, you know, that I I describe in the book that it's, these beliefs are really malleable. So even though we do take them in from the culture, they're not set in stone. So we have evidence that we really can be empowered and can, shift them from these more negative messages to more positive messages. So I, you know, at any age, I think too, we can, we can work on making those shifts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's talk about mental health for a minute. So there's a phenomenon that happens that as we age, we become more psychologically resilient. Can you, can you speak a little bit to that? You kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but what about uh, how we think about aging, influencing our mental health? Yes. So, um, so I have a couple of studies in which we've looked at mental health outcomes and we have found that those who've taken a more positive age beliefs have different kinds of benefits in their mental health. Uh, so for example, people who've taken more positive age beliefs tend to have lower levels of depression, lower levels of anxiety, uh, and lower levels of suicidal ideation even. So there, um, there are a number of uh, positive impacts of, of taking in the positive age beliefs. Um, and then we also have found in a study that those who have a more active coping style, who try to actively question and, and resist some of the negative messaging, that that can lead to an improvement in these different kinds of mental health outcomes. So, you know, regardless of the age beliefs that people start off the study in. So, um, so even if somebody has been exposed to a lot of the negative messages, if they take on this active coping style, they can show the same kinds of benefits of positive age beliefs, reducing the likelihood of different kind of uh, worse mental health outcomes or reduce the risk of like developing depression and anxiety. So you're, you're very focused on how we think about aging really matters and influences our health and well-being. And you've taken a pretty strong focus on this, how we think about aging and uh, what sorts of um, associations we assign to aging. Can you say a little bit about, um, I know in, in the book, you really focus on how we think about aging versus our health behaviors. And I know health behaviors are really popular right now, especially for reducing risk for dementia. How did you make that decision to, okay, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to focus on how we think and believe about aging. Why focus there? Because we also know that health behaviors also have some benefit. Right, exactly. So I think the um, the reason that I have taken a focus on age beliefs is I think they operate as a, um, what I call as an upstream factor. And I think uh, they can influence other downstream factors. And what I mean by that is that if we could shift our age beliefs to more positive age beliefs, we know that that can impact health behaviors and that in turn can impact different kinds of health outcomes. And we also know that if we can improve 
age, positive age beliefs, that that can have an impact on mental health or psychological factors. So I, I think that what's really key about these age beliefs is that they operate as a lens that can impact a number of other types of health outcomes, including health behaviors. And so we know, I mean, from some of the research on health behaviors alone, that it's sometimes difficult to show sustainable lasting change in health behaviors if you don't change the context that's leading to those health behaviors. And so what I've found in my research is that, you know, one of those factors that's really important is our age beliefs that then go on to impact our health behavior. So if we can shift the age beliefs that can have this sustainable change on different kinds of outcomes. Okay. So now we're going to have to, we're going to have to go to class with you because I think now is the time that we need you to tell us or teach us how do we go about shifting our age beliefs? And I know you have this ABC model that you talk about. Could you help us do this? Like what, what do you recommend for shifting age beliefs? Sure. So, um, yeah, so that's a great question. And in breaking the age code, one of the things that I was really excited about is to present some evidence-based tools that people can start to use right away. And so in, um, in the book, I present something called, as you said, the ABC method, which is um, stands for raising awareness. The A is for raising awareness. The B is for shifting blame for problems to where the blame is due. And the C is for challenge or challenging the, the, the negative age beliefs and ageism and promoting the, the positive age, um, age beliefs. And so um, in the book, I present 15 evidence-based tools but to give you an example of one that seems to be particularly powerful that is in the first part of it in, in raising awareness is um, so I've found that it's, it's really key to, because these ageism often operates without our awareness and it can operate implicitly as we talked about, the first step is really to raise our own awareness of our own age beliefs, but also the age beliefs that are operating in society and so one method that I have found um, is particularly powerful is something I call age belief journaling. And what I suggest to people is for one week to write down every portrayal of aging that, um, that you encounter in everyday life. So it could be when you go on social media, it could be when you're streaming your favorite show on Netflix. It could be when you are, um, overhearing a conversation of somebody in front of you in the supermarket lines. <laughs> so whenever you hear somebody talk about aging in any kind of way, write down what it is that, how the, the portrayal of older person came up. Um, and also it's important to also acknowledge or, or to notice when older people are not presented. So when they're omitted from conversations, when they're omitted from your favorite television show. So if you watch your favorite television show and it, uh, it only shows high school students, you know, that can be really fun to watch, but just notice that there's nobody over, over the age of whatever it is over 20 who is, who, who appears in that show. So, um, and, you know, so, so if you write down over a week, all of these examples of how older people are presented or not presented in these different formats, then what's important is to go back and look at the portrayals and in the negative examples, try to think about, is there any other way that that older person could have been presented? So when I watched that show and there was this, you know, cranky, mean principal who seemed like she was older, who was presented could there have been another way to present present that principle in that show, for um, for example? So, and what I found is that process of recording and really acknowledging these messages, and then giving oneself a little bit of time to evaluate what they are, can have a real impact on starting to improve our our age beliefs and monitoring some of them that we're exposed to. And what about shifting blame? Tell us about that. Yes. So shifting blame is, is maybe the, uh, is, is a challenging one, but we have found that people can also do that quite quickly as they start to work on it. You know, it, in, in the book, I present the, the story of the 85 year old man who goes to see his doctor and he says, my knees are really hurting me. Can you, can you help me doctor? And the doctor says, 
well, what do you expect? You're 85. Of course, your, your knee's going to be bothering you. And then the 85 year old patient responds, well, but my other knee is also 85 and it's not bothering me at all. And so that, I think that immediate um, tendency to think about aging as the cause is something that is important to question sometimes. So to think about, I mean, some uh, to take a moment and when there's something that either somebody around you is blaming on aging or, or ourselves we're thinking about is due to aging, take a moment and think about, could it be another, another cause that's leading to it? And so for example, um, one of the exercises that is relevant to this is to actually generate some challenges that you've ex- that yourself you've experienced or so, an, an older person one of your loved ones has experienced that might have been blamed on aging and then try to think about what other factors might be contributing so is it possible that the reason that um, somebody didn't remember something who's older is not because it's a senior moment is you know one of those terms that's used a lot in our culture maybe it's act, it's actually that when they were presented the information that they were distracted that they were listening to music looking at their cell phone didn't actually hear somebody something that was said about some some person and then when they try to recall it they haven't actually encoded that information or maybe they were really um there was something stressful they had some emotional experience that kept them from encoding the information at the time So that process of thinking about challenges and then thinking about the different sources of it and also, you know, ageism can sometimes, as we talked about, be a source of leading to different types types of challenges. So trying to become more aware of those attributions or blame can be can be really important as well. Yeah, I I fell into that trap, the ageism trap with um, I had a, a few years ago, I had a doctor who made a minor medical error. And, um, and I presented the error to him. He was an older physician and I presented the error to him and he, and, and got other opinions and it it was per other opinions, confirmed error, presented it to him. He refused to, um, acknowledge my concern. My initial thought when I felt invalidated by him or slighted by him was you need to retire. Right. That was my initial thought. And I do this work, right? So we're all vulnerable to this, the ageism (laughs) trap. And then, and then my shifting blame thought, well, then I had to do the awareness. Oh, wow. That's my initial thought. And then my shifting blame thought was, no, this is not about age. This is about arrogance. He was arrogant at 30. He's arrogant at 70 something. This is an arrogance problem. This is not an age problem, but I had to do this a and the awareness and then shifting blame myself just a couple of years ago. And I do this, you know, work I do. I'm really, I'm a reform ageist, right? I'm trying to reform all these, uh, ageist beliefs, but, but I, I think we all have the, the capacity to fall in these ageist traps. Exactly. Yes. And I, yeah, that's a great example. I, I think, I think you're right. I think it's really easy to have these go-to explanations that quickly come to mind. So, so that's, yeah, that's a great example of having to take a moment and thinking, all right, is there another way I could think about this? And could that actually be a more helpful way to, to think about the situation that doesn't reinforce this negative messaging that we're, that we all are exposed to? Yeah. And then I think related to that, we conflate so often age with ability or ageism and ableism intersect so much. So, um, you know, I questioned his ability to continue working, right. Which would be potentially a disability. And, and then, so I'm conflating age and ability when it had nothing to do with this interaction. It was arrogance and invalidating my concern. Right. So, um, And I think it was a way my knee jerk reaction internally that I didn't say anything to him, but was a way to reclaim some power when I felt very disempowered, but I went about it in a very inaccurate ageist way. Right. And I had to check myself on that and put blame on arrogance and not on age. Right. Right. That's a great example. And yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, I think the process can be very empowering because I think the another reason that blaming age when it's not appropriate is that it can feel very disempowering. It can feel like this is an inevitable process. There's nothing I can do about it. And often by switching the way that we think about a challenge, it can point out solutions or ways to actually make a difference that can help us. 
Okay. So what is challenging negative beliefs? I think that's pretty self-explanatory, but will you just fill us in on that C of the ABCs? Sure. Yes. And so there's, there's different ways that I talk about in the book to go about challenging, but one of the ways that it seems really important is to challenge the negative messages when they come up in everyday life. And as, as you talked about, um, sometimes they, they come up and you don't immediately uh, come up with the solution. I mean, sometimes it takes a little while and, you know, I found in my, my own um, interactions with, with these examples is that I don't always immediately come up with a retort, a way to challenge it, but I often think about it afterwards and then it's okay to go back, you know, days later to a situation or, or, you know, a challenge. And and so somebody says something that's really ageist, it's okay to come back a few days later and say like, Hey, you know, what you said doesn't match the science, doesn't match what actually happens with older people. Um, And so in the book, I present 14, um, negative stereotypes and the sort of ammunition to overcome them and having that knowledge at our fingertips that we can pull up and then bring to a situation and encounter it, you know, I think can be, uh, can be a really powerful way to go forward in challenging the negative messages. I'm also thinking about all people who are in older adulthood experiencing these experiencing ageism directly. I'm conscious that I'm a 46 year old woman who it, you know, ha- is, is thinking about older, you know, this older physician in an ageist way. But what about, um, what are the recommendations when older adults directly experience the ageist insult or affront or ageist kind of oppression or negativity? Yes. So I think people can take those same messages and when it's directed at themselves and uh, bring about the, um, you know, directly talking about the the science or the evidence that what was just said is, you know, is hurtful and doesn't support the science. But I think also one of the things that I, you know, I was excited about in writing the book is the idea that you don't have to be alone in the process. So I think that one of the, um, one of the things that we observe from other social movements is that there's a real power in uniting with other people who are going through a similar experience. And so there is this age liberation movement, which has started. And I think, I think one of the things that's really wonderful about that is it is an opportunity for people of all ages to challenge ageism and work together in documenting some of the current examples of structural ageism and then actually trying to think about structural changes. So the ideal would be that we could reduce ageism on a structural level, you know, but until that happens, it's great to have these tools that we can counter the the negative age beliefs as we encounter them. But ideally we'll work towards a society where we won't need them anymore. We'll get rid of all the negative messaging about aging. And with books like yours and disseminating the message, I think that's more and more possible. Okay. Fill us in, in, in the last few minutes about structural ageism. You in 2020, this is where I'm going to show my fangirl status right now. In 2020, I think you um, published an article on, um, the financial impact of ageism. And, and I think that also points to some of the structural ageism. Um, Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. Well, thank you for knowing that finding too. (laughs) I'm really impressed. Um, So yes. So um, in doing this research, I realized we were getting these findings and they weren't necessarily getting out to the public. So I have been mainly publishing these scientific journals. um, And that was one of the motivations for writing this book was to share the findings with with a a bigger group of people um, who could benefit from, from, from our findings. But another way that I thought would might be really important in getting the message out about the impact, the, the negative impact of, of ageism in our society and the need to overcome it, I thought would be to document the financial impact. Because what I've been told by different people in the policy sector is that it's really important to show the financial benefit of taking on a policy and showing that there's some um 
outcome that is beyond, I mean, health is really important, but I think there's something for policymakers that they want to see that something's not going to cost more than um, money that they're putting into it. So, so I was advised if we could show the financial benefit of reducing ageism, that that might have an impact in the policy sector. Um, and so I worked with a health economist and we came up with a model to actually document what the financial cost of structural ageism is on older people. So we did a study that looked at all older people over the age of 60 in the United States. And we were able to come up with a model where we documented the contribution of ageism to the most common, most expensive health outcomes in older people. And we found that it led to a cost of about $63 billion in one year, which is about the cost of, um, of, of or morbidity of, um, for obesity, and which, which we know is a very expensive outcome. And so, um, or I guess morbid obesity. And so uh, those findings, what's important is it shows that, well, the cost of, of ageism, but also the benefit, if we could reduce the structural ageism, and there could be a significant financial benefit for the countries that make that not a factor that's contributing to these health outcomes. I think in that you also, or maybe it was a separate article or connected to that, discussed how ageism contributed to eight of the most expensive medical conditions like cardiovascular disease and um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or, and um, cancers, and even um, older adults not being invited into smoking cessation programs and, and things like that. And then I think at the end of that article, you say something very hopeful, which is just by shifting our age beliefs, we could reduce like 1.7 million or something of the, I, I don't have the research in front of me, of the most expensive health conditions in the United exactly. States. Yes, exactly. Right. So, so you're right. So um, in that analysis, we focused on the primary outcome that we've reported on because of this policy goal was, was the finances. But you, as you point out, we also uh, talked about the cost um, to human health and, and, and um, these different illnesses. And so you're exactly right. So there, not only is there this large financial savings that could come about by reducing structural ageism, but it could have a huge impact on the risk of a number of major health outcomes as well. Which also impact family economy, because, um, because when people have uh, more illness and more significant illnesses, it's more expensive. And then it, it creates a, a greater financial burden on, on the whole family. And I think that's relevant here too. Yes, exactly. So in that analysis that I talked about with the $63 billion cost, it actually didn't include any of what you're talking about, this huge impact on families and loss of wages and, and people having to, to leave the workforce and family caregivers that are taking care of the um, people who have these different kinds of ageism-induced outcomes. So yes, you're exactly right that that's a really important piece of it as well. Well, Dr. Becca Levy, I hope that you feel like sufficiently honored and valued right now because um, I just so appreciate the work you do in helping us really understand the impact of how we think about ourselves and about others it has direct implications for our own health and others' health as well. And I think most of the people who listen to this podcast are helpers and either professional helpers like me or family caregivers or community helpers. And, and we all have the sort of intention, I believe in life, the people who listen to this to do good and to be helpful and to reduce suffering. And yeah. your work really helps us to do that. Thank you so much. I love your comments. And I, I think your, the work that you're doing is fantastic as well. So I love the work that you're doing in with your podcast, second season. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> really getting the message out in this really important area of mental health and aging, which is uh, gets doesn't get enough attention. So it's great that you're you're doing this work. Thank you. I will link to um, your book 
in the show notes. Um, I'll also link to some of the references that we talked about today. So folks can learn more if they're interested and, um, and just best, uh, best wishes to you continue to do this wonderful work in your book. You talk about, um, a family in Vermont and we're going to go to the, or a community in Vermont. That's pretty age liberated. And so we're going to go visit that. My family and I are going to go visit that community hopefully this summer. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. I really appreciate the conversation with you. Yeah, thank you. That's all for today. Just a reminder, if you're a licensed mental health provider looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy. But I got something for you. In my free 10-minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss, you'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.